0: Hello and welcome back to season two of Cinema at First Sight. Long time no speaks. How have you been? Phenomenal to hear. I've been great. I'm ready to get back into it, but if you are a first time listener, welcome. Lovely to have you. The premise of this podcast is that I either watch the first episode of a show or the first half of a movie and judge it based solely on my first impressions. And we are ready to dive into this season with the new Netflix original series called Ginny and Georgia, which stars Scott Porter, aka George Tucker from Heart of Dixie, and also a bunch of other people whom I've never really seen before. So I'm ready to jump in and tackle this show. There's been a lot of talk about it on the internet. That sentence made me sound and feel really old, but the Twitterverse has been a flutter. And so I'm pretty ready to start deconstructing. First question, is this a rewatch or is this a first time watch? This is a first time watch. However, it came out like a week before I'm recording this. So honestly, I've got to say I'm pretty on top of things. And now I'm just going to get started with some basic plot points. I say basic, but before me are literally 4,200 words of notes. I'm going to try and summarize. I'm a bit of a typing fiend. But the show revolves around a teenager named Ginny and her mother, Georgia, hence the name of the show. It begins with a classic voiceover monologue from Ginny, who's 15 and a quiet, angsty academic, raised by her sexually promiscuous, power-hungry, take-no-prisoners, Southern Belle mother, Georgia, what a mouthful, who speaks with the dramatic flair of a Tennessee Williams caricature and calls everyone Peach, and gave birth to Ginny when she was her age. So right off the bat, we get that Georgia's not like other mothers. No joke, Ginny straight up says, there's not much typical about my mom. So basically, it's a responsible daughter taming an outlandish mother. Think Absolutely Fabulous meets Gilmore Girls meets 2009 Tumblr. At the beginning of the episode, Ginny finds out that her extremely rich stepfather who no one seems to like has died in a car accident, so Georgia decides to give Ginny and her nine-year-old half-brother Austin a fresh start by moving to Wellsbury, New England. I love when less than two minutes into a show a character is killed off, it really keeps you on your toes. The kids do seem to be no stranger to moving around, and neither does Georgia, which we learn intermittently through flashbacks. We see glimpses of an abusive home she left when she was 15, also of her getting some life advice in the form of bee metaphors from a random female biker she meets on the road, and we see the story of how she met and hooked up with who he presumed to be Ginny's father at a bar. All that fun character-building backstory. Back in the present day, the family arrive at their new home and see their next door neighbor telling off her try-hard motorbike-riding James D. Wannabe teenage son for smoking weed. Pretty much immediately, Ginny's lured. She's interested. Her and this boy make eye contact, he gives her a weird salute despite the fact that he isn't a sailor. So obviously that's TV code for It's On in the next few episodes. Meanwhile, his mother, post-reprimand, pops over to welcome Georgia to the neighbourhood with a plate of cookies in tow. And just when he thinks she's gonna be a highly-strung Karen, it turns out that Ellen, the neighbour, is actually a stressed-out but comedic icon. Everything I'm about to say is completely out of sequence, but throughout the episode, Ellen pops over several times to day drink, to vent, and also share her son's confiscated weed. An absolute legend. We then see a bunch of different stuff happen which is semi-important but also not important enough to earn itself separate dot points in my linear plot recount. Like Georgia can't sleep so begins tending to a mysterious purple plant in the middle of the night. She hits up a local restaurant the next day and runs into the town's mayor played by George Tucker from Heart of Dixie and then tries to unsuccessfully schmooze him into giving her a job in his office despite her absolute lack of experience before all of her credit cards start to get declined. And we find out that her dead ex-husband Kenny's will is being contested and that she's essentially broke. Now back to the teen drama. Cut to the next day and Ginny starts at a new high school and within minutes of entering her first class begins an iconic and incredibly impressive takedown of her casually racist, inflexible, middle-aged white male English teacher who insists on studying books penned by almost exclusively white male authors. We love to see it. This garners the attention of classmate Maxine, aka Max, who is really nice and welcoming and also incredibly theatrical and dramatic, with just a hint of what White savior complex a winning combo. She introduces Ginny to her circle of friends and basically forces them to include her, which is really all anyone could ask for in their first aid at a new school. But then who do they run into in the hallway? None other than Ellen Stoner's son, who we find out is named Marcus and is also, what are the odds, Max's twin brother. Is anyone else already feeling the trashy teen tension starting to brew? Because same, and I'm here for it. She goes over to Max's house after school, and whenever Max leaves the room, Ginny and Marcus have a cheeky flirt, and then just before Ginny heads home, she straight up hops on his motorbike, rides around the block, comes back, and kisses him. The absolute audacity. You have to applaud it. Would I do that? Literally never, but I respect it. I guess the apple, or in this case, the peach, doesn't fall far from the tree. See what I did there? This does turn from baller move to absolute mistake when two seconds later, Marcus's girlfriend pulls up in the driveway and whisks him away. The vicarious cringe is definitely real, but she went out on a limb. And to that, I salute her just like Marcus would. Max, somehow oblivious to all of this, takes Ginny's love life into her own hands and tries to set Ginny up with Hunter, a random guy in their friendship circle who up until this point has had the single line, Max, chill. I mean, he's not wrong. They go on a date at the same local restaurant where Georgia ran into the mayor because apparently there's only one place in town that serves food and we get to know a bit more about Hunter. He suggests they skip the usual first date stuff and quote get juicy with it and divulges his deep dark secret that he used to have buck teeth before picking up two chips and demonstrating what said buck teeth looked like in a scene that I'm assuming was supposed to be charming and goofy but actually just made me slowly lose the will to live. It was the opposite of a rom-com meet cute. A disaster movie meet disgusting, if you will. He drops her home, they awkwardly hug, and that's that on that. However, it turns out that Jenny's night did not end after her subpar date with Hunter because Marcus decides to climb through her window straight into her bedroom, which I don't know about you, but seems like very rapey behaviour. To be fair, Ginny does call him out on this, but he doesn't seem to care because he still tries to shoot his shot. Honestly, I fully just thought that they were gonna talk and I don't know, maybe kiss again if they were feeling wild, but they straight up have sex, like immediately. Sure, it doesn't take very long because they're like 15 and it's their first time doing anything ever, but oh my God, what an escalation. And then how does Marcus handle it afterwards? He gets dressed and leaves immediately with the parting words, can we keep this on the DL? And another stupid salute. I mean, who's gonna tell this boy he's not in the Navy? And more importantly, who's gonna teach him how to not be an exploitative, callous, chauvinistic douche? Bag's not it. Notably less dramatically, we cut to some kind of school PTA mixer where some mother is going off at the mayor about how the school should introduce an entirely organic, health-conscious meal plan. Until Georgia waltzes in with the head of the only restaurant in town and says that she struck up a deal with him where he'll provide locally-grown produce at an affordable price. Her ideas are hit, she wins over the mayor, and he finally offers her a job. Just before the episode ends, we see another flashback, this time to Ginny and George's ex-husband Kenny in their old place, and Kenny reveals himself to be quite an absolute pedophilic creep when he tries to not-so-subtly feel her up while he is, quote, showing her how to stretch properly after yoga. Georgia pops around the corner and announces that dinner's ready, and at first you're like, did she even see that rapey behavior? Or did she see it and decide to let it slide? Like, how am I supposed to be feeling morally right now? Until we cut to the morning after, when Georgia prepares Kenny a smoothie to take to work, slips in some of that mysterious purple plant that I briefly mentioned she was watering earlier, and he has a heart attack, crashes his car, and dies. Plot twist, Georgia murdered Kenny. In my books, Justifiable Homicide, a queen move. We then cut back to Georgia in the present, tending to said murderous plant, and the episode ends. Oh. My. God. What an explosive note to end on. Just when you thought the web of teen angst and relationship drama were salacious enough, murder is thrown into the mix and the stakes are once again raised. I don't know about you, but after that way too extensive plot walkthrough, I am exhausted. So now let's move on to some of my favorite slash most exciting slash most pivotal moments. So I guess some of my favorite moments are probably Ginny's monologue at her aggressively middle-aged teacher. He is the embodiment of straight, white, patriarchally influenced men stuck in their ways, unwilling to hear the opinions of others, and I love a good feminist pop-off. One of the other things I like are that there are a lot of fast-paced cultural references to keep up with, which I personally really enjoy because I'm a ho for some trivia. In the opening scene alone there are references to the song it wasn't me vanessa Hudgens' portrayal of rizzo in Grease live and paul revere Allusions for the whole family some of them do feel completely unorganic and a bit cringe but definitely not as cringe as they do coming out of a riverdale character's mouth so in the context of a semi-trashy teen dramedy i'll allow it i also like that the flashbacks to george's past are spread throughout the show It's a way of gradually learning more and more about who I'm sure is going to be an increasingly complicated character and also understand how she transformed from a runaway from a low-income family into a strong and brassy southern glamour puss, as well as the coping mechanisms and self-preservation techniques that she's clearly adopted to survive and thrive in her many reinventions over the years. And then obviously the most pivotal moment is when we find out that Georgia killed her ex-husband Kenny. That's really the twist I needed to get me hooked and want to keep going immediately. Which at this point, I definitely do. That's also probably one of my favourite moments because we love a feminist revenge plot. Especially one involving homicide. It always makes for excellent and satisfying television. I don't know what that says about me, but I also don't care. Now, flipping it on its head, some of my least favorite moments, slash moments I consider to be least exciting and least pivotal. Least favorite, straight up, Marcus's dickish behavior that I feel the show is somehow going to forgive, and by the show I mean Ginny. Also another least favorite moment, that whole date with Hunter. Hunter is cringy and trying way too hard to be casual and nice, but anyone who tries hard to be casual is by the word's very definition not casual. And I think just some least favorite moments throughout are some of the cringe dialogue in there. There are quite a few cringe lines throughout, but most of them I don't actually mind too much and can kind of brush past. I did write down an example. Towards the beginning, Georgia says, We're like the Gilmore Girls, but with bigger boobs. I get that it's self-referential, i.e. referencing the fact that after the first trailer came out, everyone started comparing this irresponsible mother, responsible daughter duo to... The aforementioned Amy Sherman Palladino cultural staple. But what really bothers me isn't the bigger boobs comment, it's the the. It's not the Gilmore girls, it's just Gilmore girls. And in terms of least pivotal, I don't really think there is a least pivotal moment. Throughout, I was like, why are we having so many shots of her gardening? However, at the end, when it's revealed that she uses her gardening for murder, All of those scenes become quite pivotal, so I don't really know. I think even seemingly insignificant scenes are going to pop up later. That's my guess. Now on to some favorite characters. I mean, obviously Georgia. She's funny, she's unapologetic, she's fiercely protective and loyal to the people she loves, And will also not put up with anything from anyone and i definitely respect that she is my goal like she literally killed her ex-husband to protect her daughter from continued sexual assault and that's fierce loyalty i support and encourage and then i guess so far another favorite character is ginny she's smart she's nice she's kind of seemingly reserved and completely different to her mother at first but actually very much isn't she's also very bold and fiery I mean, she kisses Marcus, which is an out there move. And that scene where she confronts her English teacher is frankly goals. I wish when I was annoyed with someone or politically riled up that I could concoct an off-the-cuff, incredibly verbose and articulate retort in the form of a straight-up monologue. But unfortunately, that just doesn't happen for me because my life isn't scripted. So she's living out my fictional dream. Sure, I wish she didn't have sex with Marcus because he's kind of the worst and I think she can do better, but she's 15. And in the words of Hannah Montana, everybody makes mistakes. And this is her time to do that. And for several years afterwards. And also for the rest of her life because nobody's perfect, another Hannah quote. And then another one of my favorite characters is Austin, her nine-year-old half-brother slash George's son. He's super cute. I don't normally like children at all, but for a youth and also a white man, he's adorable. He doesn't do much, but he wears glasses, and children in glasses are inherently funny. He also loves Harry Potter, which despite J.K. Rowling's problematic transphobia, I'm all for. I didn't cover this in the plot retelling, but at one point Austin does punch another kid at school in the face who's bullying him, which is also iconic behaviour. Like, no, I don't actually condone violence, but also maybe I do, because I'm here for a nine-year-old underdog sticking it to the power, which in this case is another nine-year-old. I do think it definitely bodes well for the show that the first three favourite characters I listed are literally all members of the Cole family, so good job Netflix. Moving on to another one of my favourite characters, Max. She's bubbly, she's fun, she's incredibly extra and broad. And honestly, I think it's kind of refreshing to see someone with a personality on camera. I feel like a lot of actors and actresses feel like they need to make small and really subtle choices on camera to seem grounded and real. But in real life, how many people do you know who are completely devoid of interesting personality traits and mumble everything they say? Hopefully not many, because if so, you need to find friends who are more entertaining than a blank piece of paper. Plus the actress who plays Max manages to be extra and theatrical without being annoying and making me hate her, which is such a clever and difficult balance to strike. Absolute kudos. Max is also very, very welcoming of Ginny, literally immediately, which is great because when teen shows portray everyone being unaccepting of the new person in school slash a misunderstood protagonist, it's so annoying and unrealistic. So we support a trope projecting icon. And then another favorite character, her mom, Ellen, from Next Door. You think she's gonna come in with cookies and be a super judgy uptight neighbor, but right off the bat she whips out her weed, she's down to day drink, she finds parenting as draining as it absolutely seems. Iconic behavior from a down-to-earth comedy queen. Moving right along to least favorite characters. I think I've hinted at a few of them already, but okay, straight up, dead ex-husband Kenny. We don't know anything about him except that he tried to molest his 15-year-old stepdaughter and also seems very into smoothies in place of actual breakfast. One is definitely worse than the other, but both aren't great and I'd say warrant murder. So point Georgia. And another one of my least favourite characters, Hunter. This may seem unfair, but there's just something about him that's annoying. Maybe it's because I'm not fully invested in the performance of the actor who's playing him or maybe there's something disingenuous about the character, but something's off. He hasn't done anything outright to offend me and on paper he's perfectly fine. I just don't like him and kind of have the urge to punch him for no reason. He's bringing out a side of me I don't like and frankly didn't know I had until now and for that I resent him. And finally, another one of my least favorite characters, Marcus. He honestly seems kind of toxic. He up and takes Ginny's virginity willy-nilly, has no regard for her feelings, completely ignores her the next day. I'm sorry, what in the toxic masculinity is that display? Also, why does he have to mumble all the time? Speaking distinctly doesn't make you uncool, bro. It just makes you literally comprehensible. It's the bare minimum for human interaction. I mean, sure, he's kind of cute and a pretty mysterious. I wear well leather jackets and smoke weed. I'm not like other boys to he kind of way. But that does not make up for the fact that he does not know how to treat women or other human beings in general. He should also definitely be nicer to his mum because Ellen deserves better okay storylines I think will be expanded upon slash think should be expanded upon or what I want to see more or less of things I want to know what are the ramifications going to be of Georgia killing her ex-husband are people going to find out do people already know and by people I mean Ginny or you know the police does this have something to do with his will being contested and Georgia being entirely financially cut off just what's going to happen there will she get caught or will she get away with it I'm hoping she does And then, you know, from a light, fluffy relationship tea perspective, what's going to happen between Georgia and the mayor? Will her and George Tucker get together? But also remember when I said she managed to convince the owner of the only restaurant in town to provide locally grown food for the school? How did she convince him to do that? I can also sense a flirtationship starting there. Both Ginny and Georgia have many a finger in many a pie. And speaking of, I think we'll see more of the love triangle between Ginny, Hunter, and Marcus. Honestly, I think she should ditch both of them and find someone better who's not either annoying and seemingly disingenuous or a callous, mumbling loser. But I don't see that happening this season. So I guess I want to know who she'll end up with. My bets are on Marcus. I also want to know more about George's past. So far we know that she ran away from an abusive household and met Ginny's father, but what happened after that? He doesn't seem to be in the picture now, so how did that happen? What's the trajectory? Also, who is Austin's father? We've seen Ginny's father in flashbacks. We know Georgia was married again later to scumbag Kenny, but what man is in the aperture or space between them and was partially responsible for biologically forming Austin? I do think the flashbacks will continue throughout the remainder of the season, so hopefully these questions will be answered in due course. What I want to see more of? Ellen! She's great! Also, murder? is another thing I want to see more of. Is the show going to become a slasher horror series where Georgia starts knocking people off one by one? I'd love to see it. It probably won't, but it'd be great. And what I want to see less of, Hunter. I hate Marcus too, but I actually want to see more of why he sucks. Like, will he become less of an asshole or is that all there is to him? Hunter, on the other hand, I have no reason to hate. I just do. He's nice, but I just personally find him really annoying. So would like less of that on my screen. Moving into quite the juicy category, most problematic moments, there's been a lot floating around the internet about how Ginny and George's being a bit edgy and over the line in terms of its out there potentially un-PC jokes, so I really went through the pilot with a fine-tooth comb. Let's start off with Max's introduction. She's very full-on, which we learn from her monologue in the cafeteria when she's introducing Ginny to her whole friendship group. She right off the bat asks Ginny if she's straight or gay or they them because apparently boundaries don't exist. And then tries to touch Ginny's face before asking, sorry, is that like white girls trying to touch black girls hair? And following that up with the excuse that if she's being basic or rude, it's just because white people, quote, have more Starbuckses than black people. Is this exchange cringy? Absolutely, 100%. But is it supposed to be cringy? I think also yes. I think it's supposed to be an example of Max being nervous and then trying to overcompensate for her nervousness and potential racial missteps by being overly referential of her racial missteps in the form of more racial missteps. It's like she's trying to prove how much of a woke social justice warrior she is and ironically failing. So do I think this is problematic? I guess if someone did this in real life, yes. Well-meaning, but ultimately problematic. But the show depicting this isn't. A lot of postmodern, quote-unquote, woke activists find topics like race and sexuality difficult to navigate in general conversation because they don't want to treat them with undue stilted reverence or trepidation. So instead, act like they're beyond all that and attack the issue head-on in a way that comes across as a bit jarring and defensive. So I think the show is just kind of straight up showing that. I don't think it's demonstrating its stance on said issues or advocating that this is the stance that everyone should take so in my books i'm going to say that that isn't problematic controversially so but that's my hot take the next problematic thing that i'm going to tackle is obviously dead ex-husband kenny feeling up ginny it's not right it's bad because when is molesting an underage girl or any girl or any human being ever not problematic But obviously the show is clearly aware of this being disgusting, so much so that one of its co-leads murders him for it. Again, I would argue justifiably. I guess you could say the fact that there is implied homicide is kind of problematic if you're against that kind of thing. But also despite that fact, I find this absolutely iconic. And I don't think the show is actually suggesting that murder is the best form of revenge and advocating that people commit this crime. Because I don't think the show writers are pointing to Georgia as a flawless, shiny example of a human being to emulate. Instead, I think they're just leaving the audience on a cliffhanger to get them hooked on watching the rest of the show, and also highlighting the complicated and often contradictory nature of George's moral compass, which again, I'm sure will be explored in episodes to come. So, long story even longer, I think the jokes strike the perfect balance of not being afraid to go to certain places that others are, but also not going to places that are too offensive to even talk about. It's a little bit lightheartedly scandalous with a hint of performative work activism, but not cancelably provocative. That may change in episodes to come, but in terms of what's in the pilot, that's my view and I'm sticking with it. Moving on to what category of viewing is this? The three I have laid out are trash, meaning that it is a genuinely terrible show, treasure, meaning that it is an award-winning masterpiece, or guilty pleasure, meaning I'm into it, I'm fully lured, I'll probably keep watching, but it's kind of a trashy show. I would say that this straddles the line between guilty pleasure and treasure purely because it is very, very self-aware and isn't trying to be something that it's not. Therefore, I don't feel guilty for being into it. So it's doing exactly what it's meant to do in terms of comedic, coming-of-age teen fare. So in that specific category, it's definitely a treasure. But in the grand scheme of all television ever made, probably guilty pleasure. But also, I'm not a snob, so I feel conflicted. Anyway, moral of the story, it's not trash. In that I think that anyone who watches this will probably be lured and want to keep going, whether or not they've reconciled with that fact within themselves. Next up is viewing style. Who would I watch it with? Where would I watch it? And who would I not watch it with? AKA the least and most ideal viewing circumstances. I'd say watch it with some friends. It's not too risque, so appropriate for watching with family. That doesn't say much about me because I'm not one for boundaries with them, but I watched it with both of my parents. I think there's mild swearing and, you know, also murder and some sexual references here and there, so I guess maybe don't watch it with anyone too young, but it's for sure suitable for anyone like 14 and over. Ideally, I could see myself watching this with some friends on a fun night in. I wouldn't want them to be particularly chatty friends, because I think a lot of the information we learned in this episode will be important down the track. Plus, I love picking up on as many references as possible because I'm a trivia psychopath. But at the same time, it's not a show that requires your utmost concentration. And if you zoned out for a few minutes or talked over a scene, you wouldn't be totally lost. So, red hot question, will I keep going with the rest of the season? Absolutely, I mean that cliffhanger? Enough said, you've sold me. But even without that ending, and the addition of murderous intrigue, I was already lured. I like a bunch of the characters and the relationships that have both already been established and maybe beginning to form. I want to find out what's going to happen with macro storylines like murder, but also micro storylines like who's going to date who or be interested in who and also even what's going on with Austin and the nine year olds in that weirdly abusive schoolyard. Plus it's fun and pretty good and doesn't take itself seriously. There's a teenage love triangle, there's murder, there's a bold southern accent. I can't think of a more killer combo, pun intended. So my overall rating out of five? I'm going to give it a 3.5, maybe even a 3.5 slash 4, but let's stick with 3.5 for now. Obviously, I'm not saying it's a flawless, highbrow, cinematic masterpiece, but no one thinks it is. That's not what it's trying to be or what it should be. It's fun and entertaining, and I would definitely recommend you give it a go. And that is pretty much all I have for you. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of season two. Go give Ginny and Georgia on Netflix a go. And I will talk to you next week where I will be reviewing something that I have not picked yet. Talk to you then. Bye.